0: And Del souder has been pastoring this church for almost 33 years, um, 25 of them in official capacity as pastor, and the last eight as a lay pastor, as a teacher, an encourager, supporter, and a guide. And uh, most of you know this better than I do, we've been blessed um, by his leadership in this church. And uh, as I have told him over the past few years, with the journey that he's been on, he's been a huge inspiration. Uh, to me and I know to, to so many of you. And so I'd like Dell to come on up and i like to have a, a word of prayer for him as he brings God's message to us today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, for this man that you have blessed and that you have brought to this congregation so many years ago to guide us and direct us and to be used by you to impact so many people. God, I pray this morning as I know his heart is, it's not about him, it's about you. And I pray, God, that your spirit would work through him, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be strengthened by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Uh, Just because some of you may not know, and it may provide some background to what I'll say, is I have been on a journey that Chuck mentioned with... uh, Battle with cancer for five years. and uh, so this is always in the back of my mind, and I don't know what's ahead for me. Uh, the doctors don't give me great news. but um, keep going on. And Tim has asked me, I suppose, four or five times in the last couple of years, would I preach? And uh, once or twice it didn't suit me because I was out of town, but a couple of times I was not feeling up to it physically, and I kept telling him no. And so this time when he asked, I told him, the Lord willing. So I guess the Lord's willing, because I'm here. (laughs) But I've learned to live life tentatively, trusting and in faith, but uh, knowing that uh, my days are numbered. Now, of course, that's true of all of us, but for some of us, it becomes much more uh, poignant. I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, and I didn't check where it is in the Pew Bible. My Bible is page 955. <laughs> so I don't know, yours is probably 1100 or something. I, I don't know, but you can find it. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. And uh, I don't have it up on this. I'm not gonna put the verses up on the screen. I want you to see it, hold it in your hand this morning. So I would invite you uh, to put something in your hand Uh, where you actually can read this yourself. And I'm going to read a couple of phrases. I'm not going to read all this chapter, but I'm going to read and I'll try to tell you where I'm jumping. But Romans chapter 8, these words of the Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go down to verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. And then down to verse 31. What shall we say in response to this? And that follows up on verses 28 to 30. Let me back up and read those. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? I guess my message this morning is in response to that. Uh, If you travel on North Hollander Road, from New Holland across, and you come over there to the hill at Ridgeview Church, and you stop at the stop sign, and you turn right, you go down there a little bit, and there's a chain-link fence up there with some deer behind it, but there's a sign up in the corner. How many of you have seen that sign? <laughs> it's been there for a while. I used to, when I, every night when I was home from work, I would pass that sign. The sign says, up in the corner there at the top, on Judgment Day, what will you do with your sins? And I've contemplated that, and um, I hope, it never happened, but I hope that sometime the fellow who put that sign up there would be out along the road, and I was going to stop, and I was going to say, hey, fellow, that's your sign? Um, What's your answer to that question? How do you answer that question? How, How do you answer that question? On Judgment Day, what will you do with your sins? And uh, the more I've contemplated, I've concluded that whether you're a Muslim or you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian or an atheist, the answer is really the same answer. Everyone has the same answer to that question. Uh, what is telling about the question is that it somehow suggests or it's assuming that there's something, some conviction or some awareness or some concern that something has to be done with your sins. That, that's assumed, that something has to be done with them. So what will you do with your sins? And so sin uh, kind of hangs over us uh, like that uh, Demolocles sword that hangs over in that ancient painting. Everyone is grappling with this question about what to do with sin. And so every religion of the world works at it in different ways. Some suggest, well, okay, the one way to solve that is to get rid of God. So you have an atheist who says, okay, we'll take care of that problem. we get rid of God so there's no sin. Don't have to worry about it. Or others come up with all kinds of ways to appease the gods because there's a sense that God is somehow angry with us and is going to demand payment from us. And so people invent sacrifice systems and all kinds of rituals to appease this God, who they sense is there, but he's not a very friendly person. And it is true, I believe, the fact that there is a God, and he does have a standard that needs to be met, however impossible that standard is. Verse 3 refers to that. The law of God was powerless to solve the problem. It The law could not save us. It's impossible for us to keep the law perfectly as God has given it to us. As he communicated to us what his expectations are, the law was weak. Why? Because of our sinful nature that we have within us. And so the big quandary there in the last part of verse 3 is how to take care of this. And so we contemplate what it is that we can do about that. And the verse that everyone memorized in Sunday school, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. But then verse 17 says, God sent Jesus Christ into the world, but he didn't send him here to condemn the world, but instead to save us out of that problem, to get us released from that difficulty. And so, Tim, for a number of weeks here a while back, was preaching in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And he, so, he laid a background to what I'm going to say this morning, pointing out how we have all sinned and how, even in spite of that, there is a way to get righteousness. It's not by keeping the law, but it's rather by faith. There is a righteousness which is by faith in chapter 3 and verse 22. There's a righteousness that we can have given to us freely one that we don't earn by keeping the law, because that's been proven not to work. And the problem is not with the law, but the problem is with us. That's not a new problem. Augustine, or Augustine, whichever way you say it, wrote a thing called his confessions. And in that confessions he talks about as a young man with other young men, they went out one night just to steal pears off the neighbor's pear tree. And um, they stole the pears and they got away, and he said they ate one or two, but they weren't really interested in pears. He said, we threw the rest of them to the pigs because we weren't really interested in pears. We just wanted to feel how it felt to steal something. And so there's this thing within us that whenever we're told not to do something, we want we want to do it. Or when we're told to do something, we don't want to do it. And that shows up, of course, in each of us at a very, very early age. But the answer to this is what Tim would have called, theological terms, justification. That the opportunity to be declared righteous as a judicial act. In 2010, you may remember the name Casey Anthony, who was charged with killing her daughter with murdering her daughter. And uh, there was a long trial, and if you followed it at all, you had an opinion about whether or not she was guilty. I think, in fact, she was, because it report been reported that she later confessed to somebody else when she was in prison for another offense, I think providing false information. She admitted it supposedly to another cellmate that she had really done it. And the judge himself, later interviewed, said that he believed completely that the prosecution had had made their case, that she was indeed guilty. And I remember the day, not sure why or when it was, but I happened to tune in live when the jury came back and gave their verdict of not guilty. And then what struck me was the judge, on each of the counts, actually said, I, by the court here, I, I judge you to be not guilty. And it took me back to this verse. Yes, I did a clip of this just to remind us of this and to kind of fix it in our minds as a background. Said, Tim, if you can. Casey, Marie Anthony, the
0: jury of your peers have found you not guilty As to the charge contained in count one of the indictment murder in the first degree, at this time, I will adjudge you to be not guilty.
1: As to uh, count two, the crime of aggravated child abuse, a jury of your peers having found you to be not guilty, the court will adjudge you to be not guilty of the crime contained in count two. As to count three aggravated
0: manslaughter of a child, the jury of your peers having found you not guilty, I will adjudge you to be not guilty of that count. It
1: struck me that day when the judge said, the court adjudges you to be not guilty, when in fact everyone was pretty sure she was. But that settled it. When the gavel fell and said, you're not guilty, I understand the law, this cannot be brought up again. She cannot be retried on, on this count of, of murder. It's uh, according to the Florida law. Now, you might be surprised, but murder is not not a federal offense. Unless you kill a president or a congressman, the federal law doesn't really have a law against murder. The states are the ones who have a law against murder. And so being tried in Florida, when the Florida court said, you're not guilty, this can't be tried again. It can't be brought up again. She is forever free of this crime as adjudged by the court in Florida. In Christ's this passage says we are in the same situation. There is now no condemnation. It's already been solved. It's already been settled. We're not guilty if we are in Christ. Paul uses this term maybe 150 times in different kind of maybe variations, but that phrase "in Christ," as we understand it, is for those who have indeed been placed into Christ, that their lives have been. Put into Christ's place, he has given us his righteousness and he has taken on our guilt. So we've like traded places with him. We've been put into Christ and that's where we live. And so He has taken our guilt and he's given us his righteousness and we call that justification or a righteousification is what the word really means. We've been given righteousness and we have been declared no, con- no condemnation is our verdict by the judge of the universe. What a great relief, isn't that? If you're this morning in Christ, if you know you're in Christ, you don't really have to worry about that anymore. It's been settled and it can't be brought up again. The old song said, you ask me why I'm happy, so I'll just tell you why, because my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood, the cross of Calvary. He goes on to say, in the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. Or a song that's a little bit newer than that one. Oh, be ye glad, oh, be ye glad. Every debt you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad. And so we have the opportunity to sing for eternity the praises of God who's given us that great, great opportunity to be adjudged by the court as not guilty it's not like your computer when you hit delete you know it goes away but the right people can get it back it's not like that when God has said not guilty it is in fact deleted it will never be brought up again it says he remembers our sins against us no longer it's over and when does that happen he says now right now If you're in Christ this morning, right now, you're not condemned. What a great comfort and relief, uh, especially to someone like me who's looking at death on the horizon. Causes me to think, what is my condition before God? Am I really ready to die? And this verse is a great, great comfort. but I'm still not satisfied. As great as that is, I'm not satisfied. Verse 18, you still have your Bibles open there. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I wait, verse 23, with groaning we have the first fruits of the spirit we have that but we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. And so we find this as verse 20 describes it in a state of frustration. Because things are not working out perhaps the way we would like and there is suffering and there is difficulty and we don't really have it says what we're waiting for what we're looking forward to. Fly away, partner. You know, I'm ready to fly away. Is something that hangs over us at all times. We have verse 28 for comfort. Says that in all things God works. And the old translation used to say all things work together for good. Well, things don't work. God works. Things happen, but God is the one who works, and He does work in our lives in these times. If we love him, he's called us, which leads us into the chain of events that takes place here in verse 30 particularly, where he says those he predestined, those same ones he called, and those he called he justified, and those he justified he glorified. And so what I'm waiting for is explicit there in verse 30 in that chain, that last item. The glorification part is what I'm looking forward to. It's great to know that I'm not condemned and I'm free from sin and God has saved me and I'm living in him. But if salvation just ends there, there's still something missing. There's a missing component in my salvation. Because the end of salvation is really the glorification part. To be free from sin and evil and to be like Christ is the whole goal of our salvation. So let me just do a little bit of an aside here. One, I'm not dealing this morning with the first two. That would be a couple sermons in itself. to Talk about the first two in this chain. Predestination and the calling, the effectual calling of God can be another sermon. Second, the first three are really in the past. They've happened in the past, but this fourth one is still in the future, even though it's spoken of as done. And God often does that. Earlier in Romans, Paul even recognizes that, where he says God is one who calls things that are not as though they were. Because in God's eyes, they are so certain, in his span, not being tied to time in history, he sees them as complete. And so Paul here expressing God's viewpoint is saying, as far as God is concerned, we're already glorified, it's happened. It's so certain that he speaks of it as already having taken place. But for all of us here, it hasn't taken place. And the third thing you might notice about this is kind of an aside, is you might think that there's a missing step in here. Between justification and glorification, there's something in theology we call sanctification where we gradually become more and more like Jesus Christ. But he skips that one, I think because, I would have to assume, because he sees that swallowed up in this last one being glorified. The sanctification process is just a little bit on the road toward our glorification. Uh, R.C. Sproul used to, in teaching in his class, he said he used to get somebody up, and to save time, I won't get people up here but he would get someone up here who represents jesus christ over here and then he would get someone else and he would put him way out here on this end and he would represent adolf hitler no one wanted to be that person anyway and then he would say now i need a third person and he would say okay you're the apostle paul the most righteous sanctified person we can maybe think of is maybe the apostle paul now he says now where would you put paul in this continuum, Jesus Christ, all the way over here, and over here is Adolf Hitler, where would Paul stand? And he then takes them and he places them way down there, very close to Adolf Hitler. And he says, this represents sanctification. This represents the idea that as great as it is, we have our sins forgiven and we're being sanctified, set apart to God. We are still a long, long way from being like Jesus Christ. And it's glorification that brings us all the way over here to stand beside Jesus Christ and to be like him and so glorification is a sure thing as the scripture teaches it here we're going to be totally 100 percent transformed reminds me of the old joke that I know you've all heard about the country bumpkin that went to the city and went to the department store with his wife and children shopping and met the elevator for the first time. You remember that one? It's that kind of a transformation. He saw this old bent, wrinkled lady go into the elevator and the door shut. And a minute later, out comes a beautiful young woman and he says to his children, go get mom. <laughs> well, it's gonna be that kind of a transformation that's going to be just totally different. Martin Lord jones says of this glorification idea, we must never think of our Christian position as merely one of being forgiven. That is but the beginning. And I think that for myself, I must admit that maybe I, in the past, have not thought that much about that end point. We're saved and we feel good about that and we sing about that, but we fail to recognize that that's not the end of our salvation. That is really not the goal of our salvation. It is only being very, very small way down the road of our salvation. Yes, we all sinned, as Romans says earlier, and we fell short of the glory of God. And that's what has to be fixed. Our sins have to be dealt with so that glory can be restored. God made man in the image of Himself, as we know, in the garden, and at very least our salvation, has to restore us and put us back at least that far. Verse 21. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. God wants to put things back at least as good as they were in the garden before sin entered the garden. Else, what kind of a salvation is it if he can't even restore us to that point? But God has even better things in mind. He endows us with the glory that Jesus Christ himself has. And so verse 17 says it. If we are children, then we're heirs, we're heirs of God, we're co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And so we're destined to share in the glory of God. And so the only way that God really gets all the glory that he deserves is not allow Satan to triumph and spoil his creation, what he's already done. To not finally be able to accomplish it and to give us the glory that he's also going to give to his son. And so Jesus, we're told, of course, in Hebrews 2.10, we see Jesus... Now crowned with glory, the writer of Hebrews says, he tasted death for the rest of us. He became the author of salvation and made men holy or righteous. And so he is not ashamed to call us brothers, to call us his brothers and sisters, because he has been the author of our salvation. He has made us righteous and he is able to associate with us now because we are righteous. And so what remains for us is to receive that glory that God has intended for us. So let me think kind of logically here about what I've said. Number one, Jesus has been glorified. Hebrews 2.10 assumes that. In John chapter 12, in the triumphal entry, It says there in verse 16 that the disciples didn't really understand what was going on. They didn't really understand what Jesus was saying. Only after Jesus was glorified did he understand. So I think we can imply from that Jesus at some point was glorified. So the second thing I would then say, well, then when did it happen? When was Jesus glorified? In John chapter 7, verse 39, very early in the gospel story, a comment is made about the Holy Spirit, and it's said that the Holy Spirit was not given yet because Jesus was not glorified at that point. At the triumphal entry, we see John chapter 12. It's still future. Uh, In John 17, in his so-called high priestly prayer, Jesus opens that by saying, the time has come to glorify your son. And then in Acts 3, after this was all passed and Jesus had ascended into heaven, Peter is preaching a sermon, and he says there, God glorified his servant. You killed him, but God raised him up. In 1 Peter, Peter says... Chapter 1, verse 21, God raised him from the dead and glorified him. So putting that all together, I'm assuming that it happened around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At least it didn't happen until he was resurrected and perhaps ascended and given the place at the right hand of God. But it's in that resurrection experience that Jesus was glorified. Which leads me to then the third idea. Well then, when is our glorification going to be? And logic would say it's at our resurrection. Uh, And we can't deny that in a sense it's already happened. We're already working at being righteous and holy and trying to be like Jesus Christ. In fact, in baptism, I participated here just a few weeks ago. What do we say? We say, rise to newness of life. And so there is this element of we are already being raised with Christ, but not in the way that we're going to be raised, of course. There's this gradual migration, but in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it describes it this way. It says, we all reflect the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his likeness. Hopefully all of us are. With ever-increasing glory so there is this glorification that is a reality already that we can observe, but there's also that glory that is yet obscure. There's more, much more, yet to come. And I think Colossians chapter 3 says, says it the best. It says there that your life is really hidden with Christ in God. I think it might have a connotation of security but i think it's also suggesting that our life in christ is really somewhat obscure we don't actually see yet what it's going to be like but it says when christ appears then when christ appears then we're also going to appear we're going to show up we're going to be seen when christ appears then we will appear with him in glory. That's what it says. And so our glory, for the most part, is future. Uh, Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, he pits the momentary troubles that we have in this world, which all of us could recount, we know about, our momentary troubles. They're not worthy to be compared with the eternal glory that we're going to have. You, you can't compare those two things, according to Paul. And so when's it going to happen? I would say when we're resurrected from the dead, if we're dead. If we're not yet dead, then I believe it's going to happen when he appears, as we have there in, in, given to us in Thessalonians. It says the trumpet's going to sound and Christ is going to appear and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and they will be glorified and then those who are still alive and remain, we're going to be changed. We too are going to be transformed at that point. And so either we're going to rise from the dead as those who are in Christ or if we're still alive, happen to be alive at his appearance, at his coming, that's when our glorification is going to take place. can't happen Until then, which leads me to my fourth point of logic, what happens at glorification? Well, we can't really be glorified until our bodies catch up. We know that we're told when we die, uh, to be dead is to be present with the Lord. So our spirit goes to the Lord, but our bodies uh, still stay up here on the hill. And so what does glorification involve? Well, I think first and foremost and prominent for us is that, in fact, we get the glorified body. Uh, Notice that the scripture nowhere says we're going to get a new body. What does verse 23 say? We wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The Bible always talks about the redemption of the body that we have. And you think about it, Satan would really be successful. If he was able to destroy the body, it would kind of be a failure in God's part. God would have to now create a new one because Satan was successful in destroying the old one. And so, no, our body, I believe, the one we now live in, is the one that's going to get transformed. It's going to get reworked somehow. It's going to be transformed. It has to because, as 1 Corinthians tells us, flesh and blood can't go to heaven. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. The perishable, it says, cannot inherit the imperishable. We're not going to be fit for the kingdom of God if we have this body of flesh and blood. And so it needs to be changed. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, We will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised now imperishable. And we will be changed. The word means to make it something other than it was. Philippians 3.21 says the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. 1 John 3, chapter 3 and verse 2 says when he appears we shall be like him. And so what's that body going to be like? I I can only surmise, I I don't know. It's not going to have blood, I believe, from what we're told. But remember Jesus said when he was resurrected, when he was with his disciples, he said, touch me, you know, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. So I'm assuming we're going to have flesh and bones. Perhaps not blood, but flesh and bones. And it also would imply that we're not going to be confined as he wasn't to be able to go through walls, go through doors, closed doors, and so on, because the flesh and bones that we have will be somehow of a different kind of material in such a way that we can pass through physical objects. We'll be able to eat, I assume, because Jesus did. Didn't need to, but he did. He ate some things there with him. And he had scars on his body, so I'm guessing that I'm going to have uh, a couple feet of scars I have from all the surgeries that I've had, I suppose it's still going to be there. I'm just hoping we have good clothes of righteousness that covers it all up. <laughs> so what's going to happen if you had an amputation? You chopped your finger off on the table saw. God going to bring it back? It's part of your body. What if you've donated your organs to someone else? What's going to happen? Is he going to take them back? And what's going to happen to them when that happens? Are you going to be the same height and weight that you were when you were 16 or 61? We don't know the answers to all those questions. Is Jesus, does Jesus have DNA in his new body, his rebuilt body that God gave him? Is he still a Jew? I suppose so, or else you wouldn't have the right to the throne. Does he still demonstrate his racial characteristics? If you're black and you die, are you going to be white when you're resurrected? I don't think so. But what I do know is that this body that we're going to get reworked is going to be one that is without pain, without disease, without braces, without wheelchairs and a leave and all the things that deteriorate in our bodies are going to be taken care of in this transformed body. So that's the first thing. We're going to have a glorified body, and it's going to be the one we have, but it's going to now be glorified. And second, I believe there's going to be a moral, full beautification that's going to bring this righteousness that we've been talking about completely to bear And uh, to be exposed so that there'll be no wickedness, no impurities of any kind about us. We will only demonstrate the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we have been given and we will have been released from that sin nature that has given us a problem all through our lives. And so there's also then we could say maybe a spiritual glorification. Verse 17 says we're going to share in his glory. And uh, I think that in some sense we're going to also receive honor in the way that he has received honor as trophies of his grace. we We will have a place of honor in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 1 says we are blessed in the heavenly realms. And I think that we're going to experience that. Yes, we're going to give Christ the preeminence. We're going to worship him. But I think there's also going to be an honor that attends us as joint heirs of his. We're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to be the bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle. And so God is going to get glory from our glory. So what do we take away from this? This morning, if you're here and you're not in Christ... Then your answer to the question, on judgment day, what will you do with your sins, really I'm telling you your answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do with your sins on judgment day. Just the way it works. You can't buy life insurance on your deathbed, although a lot of people are trying to sell it to me. You can't buy flood insurance as the waters rise around your house. You can't buy crop insurance when the tornado is coming down through your cornfield. Or you can't buy fire insurance when the fire engines pull up in front of your house. It has to be taken care of in advance. And it's that way with this question. What will you do with your sins on Judgment Day? If you haven't taken care of them before that day, it's too late. And so I I would advise you this morning to have your sins declared not guilty, no condemnation. If you already have had that experience and you've already been proclaimed not guilty, then the answer is the same. There's nothing you're going to do with your sins either because they've already been taken care of. So there's nothing any of us can do on Judgment Day with our sins. Either they're taken care of before that or else they're not. And that's that. And so we don't need to spend any time worrying about that Your guilt is not a question that can be raised ever again. It's been addressed. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it says now he is not ashamed to associate with us because his righteousness has cleansed us from all our sin and is in place forever. And so our justification is a fact, and it means that our chains are gone. We've been set free. And so the answer of what will we do with our sins is always nothing. Nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've taken care of that issue, that you've taken care of our sins and we we don't really have to uh, worry about them being brought up again. They're underneath the blood of Jesus Christ Our sins are gone. But I pray, Father, for those in our world, in our community, maybe even here this morning, who don't have that confidence and didn't realize that there is a judgment day when we will be held accountable for our sins. And if we have not put them under the blood of Jesus Christ and allowed him to wash them away, then we will be in deep, deep trouble. And so I pray this morning, Father, for anyone like that, that we meet this week, that we will help to make them conscious of the lostness without our sins condemned. Comfort us with these words and make us bold for your gospel to others. We pray through Christ. Amen. Amen.